Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for September 30th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And sitting in for Catherine Smith, we're so pleased to have, for the first time on the Kudzu Vine, Jessica Salaji. Jessica? Good evening. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, good to have you, and I think we've been reading your writings on uh, Georgia Poll, but go ahead and tell our listeners right off some more about your background. Um, so I did get my start in writing um, on Peach Pundit, now Georgia Poll, um, but my full-time job is actually with com, which is an online news site, and I cover state and local politics and do a lot of um, local political investigative reporting down here in southeast Georgia. So that's what I do um, most of the day, and then I occasionally still write, um, you know, editorial pieces for Georgia Poll, and I do editorials for Fox 5 with their Like It or Not segments, too. So uh, pretty much politics everywhere, any way I can get it. You know, they say once you get in, you can't get out, and that's pretty much what's happened to me. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, without getting too specific, uh, southeast Georgia, uh, whereabouts? Um, I'm just outside of Statesboro, so I'm from the Atlanta area. I grew up in Alpharetta, but I moved down here about three years ago, um, just tired of the traffic and the grind and wanted a little bit slower pace, and I love it down here. So, pretty cool. Oh, yeah, close to the beach in southeast Georgia, so you can't go wrong there. Well, okay. um, we wanted to have you on originally uh, before we knew Catherine wasn't going to be here this uh, week to talk Georgia politics, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But the biggest story of the week, I mean, it's pretty much consumed everything at the national level, has been the Brett Kavanaugh um, hearings and, and all the aspects of that. And there's so many facets. I felt like I should have been taking notes instead I watched the Falcons game uh, just to be disappointed. Um, and, and, you know, I, I hate to put you on the spot, Jessica, but people have heard Tim and I talk about it, and it really something because of what's going on, it definitely needs a female voice. To, to give thoughts on the fact that you are, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming Republican conservative based on what I've read. Um, that kind of gives it a new angle from us, typically three Democrats. Um, how do you kind of see the just the overall situation here? Well, I was against Kavanaugh from the beginning because privacy is one of the most important issues for, for me, and he's horrible on privacy. He helped write the Patriot Act. His Fourth Amendment rulings have just been awful. So from that perspective, he was already a no. But what's happened with all of this and the complete polarization between sides, I think, is not only dangerous for the political conversations that we're com- continuing to have about Me Too and you know the, just the climate of our of our parties right now anyway, but also from the standpoint of we're deciding whether or not, and I say we as a nation, probably not us on this show, but 
whether or not we believe someone was sexually assaulted based on their political views. Like, that's how we've decided to go down the middle here. And for me, that's the most concerning part of all of this. Um, and, and the second being the most concerning is that we're not even talking about the guy's judicial qualifications or where he stands and how he might rule on certain cases. Yeah, and actually, you know, as I watched the um, the day that Dr. Ford and he both testified, and I saw a piece of video where he responded just so unprofessionally to Amy Klobuchar. And, you know, I said, and I will be honest, I, I thought Dr. Ford was believable. Maybe I'm so inclined to, you know, think she's believable just because of my political leanings, but I really did feel she was, her story was believable, that there was something there. Um, but irregardless if it wasn't true, the way he responded to Senator Klobuchar was just not of the level of somebody that's on the Supreme Court and um, to me was somewhat disqualified. I mean this is his job interview, and I can't imagine going to any job interview ever and conducting myself in that manner. Um, Tim, I know you watched the hearings because, of course, you're now retired where you have a little more time. Uh, to you know, really consume these things. What were your thoughts about the way he behaved, if you will? Yes, sir. I watched the entire thing. Uh, what a what a wild day it was. To uh, I, I have to start by saying I never actually thought when I saw the Clarence Thomas hearings 27 years ago that I would ever again in my lifetime witness anything similar. And if anything, now we are far, far more polarized than we were during that time. Um, yes, she was very believable. Um, she was visibly shaken, visibly nervous. She tried to be as calm as she could. Um, her science background seemed to help her explain things like, you know, why she remembered some things in graphic detail and other mundane things such as the names of everyone that was there she has long ago forgotten. Um, he was something very different. Uh, when I began watching him, I thought, Okay, uh, unlike a lot of others, I, I, I sort of thought maybe it was by design what he was doing. Uh, of course, that's the political person in me, almost as if he was prepped to, you know, have some rage, uh, be indignant, have some anger, interrupt the senators, um, snap off his answers, refuse to answer some other things, you know, that sort of thing. And at least with the Republican base, it helped him. There was another thing, another angle here. You know, they had this prosecutor uh, in from Maricopa County, Arizona. She did all of the questioning of Dr. Ford for the Republicans. They, they didn't say a word all morning. Uh, but then... When the evening session started with Judge Kavanaugh, basically Lindsey Graham started it off, really, and, and they just dropped her. 
and kind of moved her out of the way, and they took over the questioning. And it became a series of speeches. It became very, very partisan. I had never seen anything quite this partisan in the Senate Judiciary Committee before. And that's what it descended into by the end of the thing, just a hyper-partisan um, series of speeches, accusations, back and forth. And basically we were left at the end with what we started with, a he said, she said thing. But then, of course, the next morning things took a different turn, and I'm sure you'll get into that now, David. Yes, we'll get into a lot of different facets of this. Um, but, but Jessica, I know you have, you told us you have uh, concerns about his um, views on privacy, Fourth Amendment. But let's just look from just a Republican political perspective. You Let's just say you agree with this guy and you think he would be good for the court or his views and someone like him would be good for the court. Given all of this negativity and, and question marks, is he like – a hill worth dying for. Uh, um, you, you know, why him? Why is it so important that he get the nomination? Uh, why not pull him and put up somebody different? You know, that's a, not a black and white answer to that question, and it's really hard for me to put myself in those shoes. But to get to your the meat of your question, which is, is this a hill worth dying on, you know, I think that the Republicans honestly believe it is because they feel that if this, if the Democrats are successful in, quote, tarnishing, you know, the reputation and image and everything else of Kavanaugh, that they'll just do this for every single person that comes forward. And I, I feel like that's why they're digging their feet in. I was, I was watching some of the commentary on, on Facebook and other social media over the weekend, and, I mean, they Republicans really feel like they have a duty to support him because he's been wronged and they say that Democrats have made a victim out of him and that this is a a party job to take this on and see this through and so I I don't think anyone's going to back up on it no matter what the findings are of any further inquiries or background checks or whatever they they just they are willing to die on this hill yes I would say they are yeah, it just it seems kind of short-sighted to me to think that that this is the only fellow with these views that but then there's plenty more and they would have a much better reputation. Um and and this has gone both ways. I mean, I know President Clinton put up some attorney general nominees that um that they didn't pay t- uh, taxes on their nannies and things like that. That became disqualified and and we can keep going through and find people on both sides that had personal issues that disqualified him. And we're kind of losing that probably both ways. And a lot of that, I think maybe Donald Trump as well, given uh, the things that came out during the campaign on him that were no longer disqualified. So we've kind of lost something both sides. Um, but, but I, I, I mean, I was thinking this past week, you know, the perfect person in a lot of ways to put up would be, Mike Pence has a law degree. I don't think anybody would believe he did anything like this. And then Donald Trump could pick one of his own people. Now, obviously, he's the vice president, and you might not want to do that. But there's obviously other people that um, have a better personal reputation than Brett Kavanaugh because, no less, he was admitted to be the 
most famous beer liker in America at this point, based on his testimony. Um, I mean, is there something, Jessica, that special about Brett Kavanaugh more so than other possible nominees? I don't think there is. I don't think a lot of the people who are defending him like it's their own brother right now even knew who he was six or eight months ago. I mean, it's not like – I don't think – I think you would see this type of defense with every candidate that was put up simply because of the polarization and the our people have to win no matter what, no matter what the cost. But I don't I don't see anything in particular that Kavanaugh brings to the table that somebody else could not offer and possibly more. Yeah, now, and something we mentioned last. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean. I have conservative leanings, but I haven't voted straight Republican in a long time. So I see when I'm talking about Republicans as a whole, I mean, I see so many flaws in in their all or nothing, our people, no matter what. I mean, that's kind of why I, I distanced myself from the Republican Party. And this is a prime example of it, whether – I mean, I'm not sure who to believe because you look at – you hear both sides and – you know, I don't think it's my place to decide because I wasn't there. All I'm hearing is what I'm being told. But I, it turns a lot of people off to see this this defense as if it's, you know, as if they know they were there, they were present, they have more facts than anybody else, and they're willing to put their own reputations on the line to defend a guy they don't even know. That's concerning to me. Yeah, apparently there is one guy that knows, but he's hiding out in Delaware. Um and, and the, we mentioned this last week, is there's three women on the high court. They were all nominated by um, Democrats, and this was a chance. Uh, I looked at the short list Donald Trump was picking from, or the supposed list, and I believe there were two females there. So that would have been a chance for the Republicans to say, hey, not all women are, are you know Democratic nominees. We can actually um, uh, nominate a woman. To me, that would have been a chance to do that, and then you would have um, – it's far more unlikely based on you know past history that, that there would be an allegation like this to come up. Um, well, Tim, let's go ahead and try to move into the next phase of this. Um, he was voted out of the Judiciary Committee with a caveat. Um, Senator Jeff Blake of Arizona uh, said that uh, he would vote, uh, vote him out of committee if um, – that uh, they did an FBI investigation over the course of this week. Um, what does this mean politically and, I guess, legalistically? I mean, are they likely to be able to find more evidence in a week, or is this just a procedural thing? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure, given the narrow scope of the investigation, if they will come back with much more than they left with unless, uh, for instance, Mark Judge were to decide to tell what he knows. Um, because it, it seems like he's the kind of guy that could could really put a stamp on it, uh, at least in one respect. Um, but as far politically for Jeff Flake, it means nothing. He's he's leaving office. There are four senators, and he's one of them. We need to keep thinking about them, who are wavering, three Republicans and one Democrat. No one is sure how they will vote in the full Senate. 
uh, I believe, in order to secure Flake's vote for the entire process, though, they had to go and do this. But you got to remember, for instance, the FBI is not investigating his history of heavy alcohol use, for instance, which to me would be a prime component of everything that happened, perhaps the triggering component of everything that happened, but they're not going to be investigating that. Um, I don't believe they're going to be interviewing all three women who have, you know, come forward. Uh, I think they've only, uh, I think they did reach out to uh, Ramirez, um, but that that was it. Um, another thing, uh, I wanted to mention something that Jessica was was talking about. The new Marist poll that come out, you, you you're not going to believe this. Fifty four percent of the Republican respondents want Kavanaugh confirmed even if the allegations turn out to be true. I'm saddened by that. They're they're saying that they like support a felon on the Supreme Court, a known felon. I mean, this that isn't political there. What what is wrong with us in this country that we are so partisan that we would be doing something like that. Um, well, look at what the Republicans it, are doing in their own party. I mean, Lindsey Graham has been a blemish to Republicans for the last two decades because of his right. moderate views and his right. alliance with Democrats. And he took five mm-hmm. minutes, said something that they agreed with, and he was labeled a hero over and over and over, a hero. And Jeff Flake did something that a lot of people would feel is reasonable and they want him gone. They say his days can't come to an end soon enough and this, that, and the other. I mean, even within the – it's not just Republicans against Democrats. It's Republicans against Republicans. Mm. Goodness. Yeah. It's, Tim, uh, there's another T-shirt probably getting printed out there right now. I'd rather be a rapist or an enabler of a rapist than a Democrat. Uh, I mean, those two guys wearing that T-shirt, they – that picture is worth so many words about explaining, uh, you know, America today um, that people see the other side. And I think a lot of cases, Republicans see Democrats is so much more inherently evil than so many other things that we would think are evil. Um, but of course, a democracy, if everything works like we would hope it would 50% plus one, um, or a plurality, if there's multiple candidates, gets you the uh, the election. Um, Jessica, where do you think this does to all kinds of not just female voters, but all kinds of voters that may be more swing voters, or may have been very soft Republicans, or maybe even soft Democrats? I mean, what does this whole situation do to those voters? You know, I from the the ones that I have talked to who are independents and and in the middle. It's really making them just take a step back and wonder who they're going to vote for at all come November because they're upset with the behavior of both sides. I mean, this is the type of this. What's happening right now is what leads to apathy and what pushes people out of the political process because they can't find their own place in it if they're not outraged on either side and they're just trying to assess the best they know how. They don't know where they fit, and a lot of people that I've talked to that 
you know, don't vote straight ticket on either side are very confused by just the constant anger and polarization that seems to be growing greater by the day. And I, I think that it's going to, you know, I think it's going to lower the turnout of the independents come November, especially here in Georgia. But we're, get, we're going to get to that in a little bit. So. Yeah, well, we had a guest on the other week, um, Stephen Levitsky, that wrote a book, you know, How Democracies Die. We talked about that. We won't have another conversation in the future talking about once we get through this period, and Matthew Dow, one of our other guests, he wrote on Twitter, you know, once we get through this period in history, you know, how are we going to rebuild um, to where we have, you know, a set of rules that, uh, that democracy can function under? Because what we've been going with the last, you know, few years is pretty dysfunctional. I mean, even really before Donald Trump with how Merrick Garland was treated, um, and then we can probably name some other instances, Um even where Democrats may have been in the wrong on some things where we've just had a loosening of the democratic procedures that we went with for 200-plus years. One more facet of this that I wanted to talk about, and I read in two different articles, that different Republicans were bringing um, investigations or something against Democratic senators. One was against Sheldon Whitehouse. One was against Dianne Feinstein. I, I remember that was Tom Cotton. That is putting, um, you know, filing a complaint against Don Feinstein about when she knew things and when she turned things over. Although to me, get that gets a little tricky because Don Feinstein is the senator from California and Dr. Ford is one of her constituents. And so to me, that kind of um, plays in just that they're in the same state because that's her senator and her representative in Washington. Um, Tim, you may have even read these things in more detail. What's going on here, and uh, what do you make of it? Well, Lindsey Graham was mentioned. I know this morning he was interviewed um, on, on uh, I believe, CNN, and, and he said he, he, he's wanting to put together an investigation of who is the leaker. That That is where they're turning now. Uh, who is the leaker? Not is this true, is this not true? But who leaked out that this woman had sent this letter to uh, Senator Feinstein and la di da di da That's 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 what they hope to find out in their investigation. And uh, I, I kept thinking when I heard that, well, that's fine and good, but what I would love to know is, is this true or not? Um and and I would also like to know something else. Uh, you know, I understand what, what you said, David, about winning elections. Elections have consequences. I understand that. And I think under normal circumstances, even though I may not agree with them politically, uh, you know, people should get their nominees. I, I could not think of a earth-shattering, compelling reason to keep Judge Kavanaugh from being confirmed if it were not for this. But you know what? It is for this. And that cloud is always going to hang over him, you know, regardless, because I, I don't think we're going to have a firm answer at the end of this. Uh, and I just, uh, uh, another thing, too, I think this is really, really, really 
going to set off some angry voters. And I'm telling you what, angry voters vote. I've discovered that in 50 years of politics. Their vote, they vote, and they're coming in 37 days, and I believe hell's coming with them. But yeah, and, 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 I'm, and I think that's, that's what's so problematic about this is uh, Neil Gorsuch was a much cleaner, better nominee, but that was the appointment that really was Barack Obama's and should have been Merrick Garland. This is one where the justice did retire um, during Donald Trump's term, and then he appoints, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, who's flawed. So it's going to be, it's going to kind of taint both of his nominees for different reasons, um, and mm-hmm. that taints the court, which the court should continue on. And of course, another point that got made is there's been four appointments by Republican presidents that won with the electoral college, but not uh, majority of the votes nationwide and, and so it's really kind of like the will of the people it, it's not a clean process about what the will of the people are um you know only clarence thomas will be a republican appointed judge um by a majority you know president george hw bush um so that's kind of another consideration well let's go ahead and get into georgia specifically the main reason we had jessica on to get a uh, not a total Democratic perspective um, on some of these races. And Jessica, to me, it seems like there's no better place to start than the governor's race, the top-line race. And I know one thing in particular is you do a lot of um, TV analysis of media, but let's just start with the overall picture. Where do you see this um, uh, governor's race? I definitely think that the race between Kemp and Abrams is going to be a lot closer than people are giving Abrams credit for. You know, a lot of Republicans have seen the polls showing her close and even her internal poll that showed her ahead, and, you know, they just brush it off. And I've told Republicans, you know, if you want Kemp to win, that's a dangerous perspective to have because you need to prepare for the worst and engage as if you're behind, not like you're ahead. And I I think that if the, the mediocre engagement continues through November, that that could easily put Abrams over the top between all of the races down the ballot that are engaging people on the Democrat side, and then on top of the fact that the Republicans aren't working as hard as they possibly could, um, you know, I think it could be problematic. Yes, um, I think I read a poll saying that a good many of Trump supporters don't believe that Democrats can win the House. Well, that um, seems like it's an easier bet maybe than, you know, Georgia Democrats to win the governor's mansion. So that, they're going to um, uh, suffer from overconfidence. Seems, seems like Georgia Republicans would be a lot easier to suffer from overconfidence. Um, and so that's going to kind of factor in. I mean, I've had the opportunity to sit down with the majority of these candidates and do a one-on-one interview with them. And, you know, the loud, again, polarized headlines that we're hearing are not really how either of the candidates on, on any of the tickets are when you sit down and ask them about the issues. And I think as long as the candidates stay on their message and continue to, you know, speak reasonably and, instead of in, you know, false TV ads or headline-catching press releases, I think that 
the number of people who are going to turn out to vote is only going to continue to grow, even without what's going on, I mean, without considering what's going on the national level that's going to drive people to take out their anger at the local and state level. But, I mean, these, these candidates, I've, I will give the Democrats credit. I think this is a, they have a great slate this time. They have a whole lot of substance that, personally, I have not seen in the same way that I have with Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico and, of course, John Barrow. But I think that there's a much better chance for Democrats as they move down the ballot than there is with Abrams, even though I still think her chances are within grasping distance. Yeah, well, we're going to handle this a little different. Uh, Tim, I want to ask you a question. Then I'm going to let you ask Jessica questions about the governor's race and even move it on to something else if you want to, since she's kind of our guest and our guest host. But, Tim, the, the poll that Jessica mentioned, the internal poll, showed uh, Stacey Abrams up six points. Um, that's I don't think we've seen a number like that in a Democratic race in well over a decade, a statewide race. Um, what's your thoughts on that poll? Well, of course, uh, as Jessica mentioned, it is internal. Uh, you you can kind of take it with a grain of salt. You know, you know, I love to look at compilation polling. One of my favorite sites to look at, as as you are well aware, David, is Real Clear Politics. Their compilation polling of this race is 45.0 to 45.0 dead even. Now, when I say that, that's that's kind of where I think we are in the mid-40s range with 8 to 10% undecided, which would be probably a classic example of a close race. What I want to do now is turn to Jessica and ask her about another angle. And I guess it would be the Jim Martin scenario. You might recall in 2008, uh, Jim Martin ran for the U.S. Senate against Saxby Shambliss, and we had a runoff because the Libertarian peeled away just enough votes for that to happen, you know, in Georgia, you got to have 50 plus one. That's the law, or there is a runoff. Now, there's a fellow by the name of Ted Metz that's running for governor on the Libertarian ticket. And my question to you, Jessica, not only about this race, but those down ballot races that you alluded to, because the Libertarians are running a pretty full slate down ballot, too. If they pull two, to 3% of the vote, as close as these polls are, if they're accurate, are we looking at one or multiple runoffs uh, in some of these statewide races? You know, I think there's a couple. I think the Libertarians have a candidate in the governor's race, um, the Secretary of State's race, and public, two public service commission seats. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm inclined to believe that if there was going to be a runoff, it would be in the Secretary of State's race because of the Libertarian candidate and one of the Public Service Commission races. Based on the polling that I've seen and speaking with Ted, who is a friend but is not a well-funded candidate and who's having a hard time getting his message out there, 
you know, I just don't foresee him forcing a runoff. He's not as strong of a candidate as the Libertarian Party has run in previous years. And that wouldn't be the race that I would speculate forcing into a runoff. I think we'll know who our governor is going to be on November 6th. Um, The Secretary of of State's race is a little bit different because, you know, John Barrow, he's represented three congressional districts in the state over different time periods. He's a known Mm -hmm. guy. Brad Raffensperger is not a strong candidate. He doesn't really have a um, huge platform that is reaching voters other than having an R behind his name. But Smythe Duval, who's running as a libertarian, has a very articulate and um, direct and pretty much divisive campaign platform that I think appeals to people from both sides. So I think you would see people who would typically vote Republican or maybe even Democrat go in that direction in that race. Okay, now that brings up another question I would like to ask you. As you know, on primary night, John Barra got 49% of the overall vote when you combine those that you know showed up to vote in both party primaries. He got 49% of the vote. No other statewide Democrat got over 48%. Is John Barra functioning realistically as the top of the ticket? On the Democratic side this year, even though technically he's not there, but is he really functioning as the top of the ticket? You know, I would I would honestly say yes. And the thing that's frustrating about the rhetoric around him is people are quoting things from his congressional record from years and years ago. And, you know, the circumstances changed. Our climate and our nation has changed, and he's admitted that his views have changed a little bit. But when I spoke to him in an interview, I mean, he pretty much debunked and said on camera his campaign positions and refuted everything that's been said about him. And they're all, they're not even partisan positions. It's mostly just logical, you know, this is, my perspective and here's why and and I think that he's going to gain a lot more traction than some of the other Democrats obviously Abrams is in a different position but from the other races I think he's going to gain a different level of traction because of that the way that he approaches campaigning and constituent services and outreach and just dealing with people he's he's not afraid to say where he stands and um I th- that's very respectable but I think that that's going to go a long way for him over the next month and a few days okay one more question and then i'll throw it back to david um i know that on election night what i'm going to be looking at to see how i think this thing might be going is what is happening south of atlanta across the traditional black belt and, and essentially south of the metro area all the way down to the state line i'm looking to see if Democrats are overperforming in that area, what are you going to be looking for on election night for clues? You know, I was reading an article in AJC that was talking about what exact, just exactly what you mentioned, and I think that that's a key indicator, not just for this election, but where our state is going over the next several years. But I'm really intrigued to see um, if the people in South Georgia specifically who still may have Trump signs in their yards um, even two years later are as loyal to the party as 
as they claim to be publicly because while they want to align with the person that Trump has endorsed or the party that Trump stands for, they also want the services and the resources and the things that the Democrats are offering. And I just wonder at the end of the day when they're in that voting booth um, if if they're going to take a different route at the state level because they feel so confident in what's going on at the national that they feel like maybe they can concede a little bit. Okay. With that, David, you take it away, buddy. <laughs> yes. Well, let's um stay on the governor's race just a little more, and I want to talk about the ad campaigns and really – the way the ad campaigns have changed, um, Democrats a little bit. Stacey Abrams, um, she did put out an ad talking about how she worked with Governor Deal and how she can work with Republicans and different things Republicans have said positive about her as a, a negotiator. And then on with Brian Kemp, uh, he had the, I'm never going to smile, I'm going to subtly threaten the boyfriend with the gun, and then I'm going to talk about my pickup truck where I can – drive around and pick up illegals in the pickup truck and had dynamite and chainsaws and every other um, macho thing that he could compensate with. And then in the general election, he smiles. Uh, There's warm music. He has his um, wife and his kids talk for him and talk about how he's a, uh, you know, almost a warm person, not a good person, but even um, there's warmth there. Uh, What, What's with the change in particular uh, with Brian Kemp? But if you want to speak to Stacey Abrams and the uh, moderating there, too, that's fine. You know, I think that the Kemp campaign knew they had to add a little bit more substance and a little bit more feeling because typically and historically Democrats do have a lot more feeling behind, you know, their their message as a whole. So I think that they knew that they had to – warm it up a little bit and appear more as a family man. I think and there's a lot of assumptions when you're in the Republican primary, that they assume you're in a family man. They assume that, you know, they, there's certain things you don't have to talk about because they Republicans assume that you have those things before in order to get to where you are in the primary. So I think that that's, you know, it's just a shift to you. A lot of people say that it's, you know, trying to appeal to the middle. Kemp says that they're not, they're not changing their positions that this is where he's been the whole time. Um, maybe it's just a delivery change. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a marked difference. I would agree with that. Yes. Uh, well, well, I mean, doesn't that kind of undersell Republican voters, the Republican base that he really, and Casey Cagle did give them substance, but he gave them no substance. He gave them, I drive a pickup truck. I still for the life of me and said it multiple times. I don't understand how that's a qualification. I drive a truck. It, it makes me no better, no worse of a, of a leader for anything that I drive. That is my transportation. And that was the core of the campaign. And then he had, um, you know, illegals, illegals, and more illegals. Um, how was he able to get away with such a non-substantive campaign in the Republican primary? I think that, I mean, I think I think it's because Casey Cagle would have had to have won outright in the primary before the runoff in order to take the seat, and it became a referendum on Cagle. And Cagle, he was fairly negative, and I think that Kemp capitalized on being able to make people laugh or being able to people kind of connect with him, and 
that's really all he had to do. I mean, the polls there at the end showed that Kemp, after Deal endorsed Cagle, that Kemp was on the uptick and was poised to win, but then Trump's endorsement just tipped it far over the scales, higher than anyone ever anticipated. But I think that, you know, Kemp just, all he had to do was make people relate to him and he could get over the finish line. Yeah, and that, that says a lot, say, the fact that, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, one of the things that's been frustrating is that, you know, the Republican candidates throughout the whole time, until July 25th, did not talk about the plans that they were telling people at meetings or on their websites or in press releases or on Facebook. What they were putting out in television commercials did not even remotely resemble the plans that they were talking about, which I felt was very, not disingenuous, but confusing, because you're telling us that you're the policy-based candidate while putting out ad campaigns, which I did think some of them were comical, but, you know, they weren't. I'm, I'm an insider, so I'm an, I want the substance. Yeah, and, and well, and I think that's kind of, you, you said when uh, Nathan Deal endorsed Casey Cagle, it was one thing, and then Donald Trump endorsed um, Brian Kemp, and then it was seemingly over. That is kind of to me a sad state of affairs. This is a guy that's had the job based on a guy that's never resided one day in the state, and the guy, Nathan Deal, I, I mean – you can point to things he's done. I, I would argue as a Democrat, and probably I would hope most Republicans would too, that he's been a vastly better governor of Georgia than Donald Trump has been president of the United States. He's better at his job. He, he actually has accomplishments you can point to. But yet the, the cult of personality um, of Donald Trump trumps everything. Um, and to me that's a very sad thing for the Republicans trying to grow their party. Um, well, I want to switch gears to the, the lieutenant governor's race, and I was reading – as the time I was inviting you, you've had some strong thoughts on uh, um, Jeff Duncan, the Republican nominee for lieutenant governor. Kind of just tell your background with your thoughts on him and where you see this race. Um, so I think that Sarah Riggs Amigo is a great candidate. I think that she's going to give him a run for his money. Um, one maybe one that Republicans aren't anticipating because she is very issue-driven. My problem with Jeff Duncan from the beginning, um, I knew him as a state representative. I knew him well. He was a friend. Um, I knew his legislative voting record. I mean, it was very conservative, um, with the exception of a few bills. I would say that he maybe even had some small-L libertarian leanings. But when he started running for lieutenant governor, he changed his – platform completely and surrounded himself with people who kept him so on message that he didn't have a message. His message was that he was a businessman and he's a conservative and he's going to fight the system and that's it. Um, there's no plan for anything. And that's been a huge problem for me. All of his interviews are very limited and where it really rubbed wrong with me was that we extended the opportunity for an interview with him so that because his website does not have any um, in-depth information about him either and we extended the opportunity for him to sit down so that he could explain some of his positions and the campaign wasn't open to it um, pretty much that it wasn't worth their time and so even from a non-personal perspective just the fact that 
somebody has not been out there, it, it's frightening to me that someone has made it this far in an election cycle with no plans. You can get upset with Brian Kemp about some of the things he's done, and you don't have to agree with what he's done, but he has plans for rural Georgia, and he has plans for education, and he's outlined some specifics of things he would like to do or things he won't do. Jeff Duncan has not done any of that, and it's extremely concerning to me. Mm, I guess he has less than seven words. Um, well, let me tell you, I, back to the media, I remember some of Jeff Duncan's ads this summer, and I really don't consume a lot of local-type television uh, based on my schedule teaching and, and coaching and whatnot, so I really don't see as many ads as I think a lot of viewers unless I hunt them out. But I remember Jeff Duncan had a lot of ads with him pitching a baseball, and I got the impression that if you could say, Jeff Duncan, I'll give you two paths. I will let you win the lieutenant governor's race. You can serve eight years there, and then you can have another eight as governor, and then we can even give you some more political um, opportunities to lead after that. Or we can give you five more years of a good arm, and you can pitch for the Braves or Red Sox or whoever he wants to pitch for. I didn't think for one second that he wouldn't choose the good arm to pitch some more. Um, Did you get that impression from those baseball ads that that seemingly – was kind of what he was about. Is that for me or for Tim? <laughs> That's for you. I mean, did you see those, Jessica? You, you follow the media. I did. Those ads where he just pitched the baseball and and it talked about some issue and it was just all. It was more than one baseball ad. Yes, and I felt like they didn't really fit. Like you're, if for most of the ad, you're wondering why, why there's baseball included, and I think it's just. Because they're, I mean, they're really trying to follow the the Trump, you know, celebrity aspect of, oh, this guy was somebody before he ran for office. And, you know, the other thing, too, is that Jeff Duncan was a state representative for almost six years. And you don't hear about his record. You don't, they pretend that he never was a state representative, that he, he didn't serve in office or doesn't have anything that you could talk about. And Democrats could easily be talking about the things that he did and but it was very interesting to me with all the money that flowed into that race and um when again all they did was talk about schaefer and i said when the election was over for the republicans i you know now that schaefer's gone what is he going to talk about because all he talked about was schaefer while throwing a, a baseball <laughs> yeah I, and i really hadn't heard much about him if he's even Addressed um, Sarah Riggs Amico. Tim, I do want to, uh, Jessica knew you hadn't had enough uh, voice time, so I'm going to throw it back to you to ask questions about either the lieutenant governor's race or if you want to shift us into uh, other statewide races. Yeah, I do have one question about the lieutenant governor's race. Now, the, the political hack in me thinks, okay, he is avoiding all talk of his time as an elected official because he wants to run as the ultimate outsider. Is there any meat on the bone at all to that one, Jessica? I mean, I think that's what he's trying to do, but I don't think, like I was just saying about him serving in elected office, he's not an outsider. I mean, he is very much an insider. He knows how the system works. He knows how the, the, the House works and the Senate works. He, he knows how all this is going to operate. And – the only the bigger thing for me is that if someone is not accessible while they're on the campaign trail, are they going to be accessible when they're elected? Because it's 
right now is the time that they're supposed to be begging for people's support and and giving people reasons to be their friend and to be to align with them. And so if you're not doing that, then what kind of elected official and public servant are you going to be when it comes time to hear people and hear people on the issues and to hear, you know, the people, the surrogates that we send to the Senate to hear our voices? I just mm-hmm. – it's concerning. The, the, is there is there any chance that that they're trying to play up this angle of, uh, well, you're in the media, so therefore you're part of the problem. You're the fake news, blah blah blah. So we're not going to talk to you, and people, the average person, can connect with that. Would that be an angle they would be pursuing? Um, I would say normally I would say yes, but um. My understanding is that it's kind of been a very closed circle around him anyway. I mean, I know that even some of his friends were told that he was no longer taking calls, that you could contact his staff or send them an email. Um, We're talking about friends. This was on his cell phone voicemail that you should um, send an email or contact his staff. And so So, it's not just the media. Yeah, so saying nothing in the minds of his staff is is probably better for him politically at this point than saying anything is, is that it that's what i'm that's what i have gathered and you know if that's how we're going to elect people we're going to send them all the way to the state's second highest ranking office without saying a darn thing about what they believe then we got a lot more problems than i thought Wow. Okay, and and David was uh, right about one thing. I would like to change gears a little bit because I want to get into um, the congressional situation in Georgia because, well, a year ago, Georgia was the center of the congressional race universe. And I want to ask about that. I've got to give props here. To me, Karen Handel's campaign, both in the primary portion of that special election and the general election ran a really good campaign. They really good. They were hitting on all cylinders. They took the initiative. They got the pulse of the voters. They got their vote out and, and they were facing a terrible headwind and, and, and they won and they won with a little bit despair. And I was wondering if you thought that perhaps going forward, because of the changing demographics and some other things in Georgia, that's making these races closer, do you think that the formula they used to win is a good formula to run at the congressional level around the state, or did that just work exclusively in the 6th District? You know, the 6th District kind of got a – an interesting reputation during all of that. But I think that I really do think that that's a a method that could be used elsewhere. I mean, she's kind of implementing it right now. She's really focusing on her record and she hasn't just gone around aligning with Trump. Um, But the district, I feel like the sixth district is unique in the way that they're, it leans Republican by voter standards 
But those Republicans aren't your staunch conservatives. They're a little bit more moderate sometimes um, because you go up into Cobb and you have, you know, Buckhead and things like areas like Sandy Springs and things like that. So I just, I'm not sold that everything that you're talking about, I mean, her campaign firing on all cylinders is something that benefited her. But I also Mm -hmm. think that because of the district that it was in and the way that the special elections work, that it was really an opportunity. The special election is what I think made that function the way that it did. So so the type of campaign that was run in that special election wouldn't necessarily work in Jack Kingston's old district, for instance. I mean, Jack Kingston or Buddy Carter is who's down there now and he doesn't have mm-hmm. he has a Democrat opponent and it's not really she's not really coming out with a bang and you know, Francis Johnson, who is a very well known guy in in all around the state is running in the 12th district against rick allen and he's kind of doing a combination of what handle did while simultaneously going off of the abrams momentum and it's still not having the same impact um i will say that you know talking about the way that handle ran her campaign trent neesmith was the opponent of francis johnson in the democrat primary down here in georgia 12 and he very much Mm -hmm. ran his like her and he for some reason you know he was the front runner and then all of a sudden he just fizzled out and i i don't even i think he came in in a distant second behind francis on election day so i mean i don't think it's a cookie cutter that you can just pick because our districts are becoming more and more unique if that makes sense Hmm. now what i'm gonna do is switch gears again david i want you to come back in on the promise that you're going to talk about the seventh district because you also are from the metro area and you love to talk about this district so shoot <laughs> yeah and i'm not from that district i'm i'm originally born in the district that now david scott represents um in jonesboro but um uh, i do think that that would all see is going to be um, the one that probably flips before the handle seat. Um, one, the demographics of Gwinnett are changing, and I do think some of those candidates in the 6th District, not only um, Bordeaux, who won the uh, the nomination, but even um, David, and I forget his name, he, he had the um, uh, tutoring-type service. He was an Asian-American. I thought he was a good candidate, too. Honestly, to me, they kind of fit those districts better than um, John Ossoff fit that district. I think John Ossoff would have been a great candidate running in part of the city of Atlanta, uh, but he wasn't a good fit for a more suburban district. Um, I think in 10 years he might be a better candidate um, when he's you know, married with kids and all that. Um, but I, I do think that 6th district may change first. And some of the 538 analysis actually showed that it was a closer race, um, uh, you know, in that Gwinnett seat. Uh, Jessica, I know you don't live in Metro Atlanta, but you're familiar with it. Uh, What are your thoughts on Rob Woodall and that um, whole Gwinnett area? I mean, Rob Woodall hasn't exactly done anything to the Republicans per se, but I would also argue that he hasn't done anything worth writing home about, and I think that that's going to hurt him because when you have the with the with the 
anticipation of voter turnout that we're all expecting and the blue wave per se, um, when you don't have people energized, you know, all he can hope for is that the people don't get lazy as they go down the ballot and they still check his name. I think that it's not going to necessarily be people voting against him, but people just not voting at all and that on, you know, for him, that's going to hurt him. And I think you're right that if any of them flip, it will be the seventh before the sixth. Yeah, and you talk about voter fall off. I mean, I think that's also a very good possibility on some Democratic ballots. Um, I'm going to vote for Stacey Abrams. Voted for Stacey Abrams. I'm going out. Um, I mean, how much do you think voter fall off will affect any of the campaigns? You know, I don't think we'll ever see, and maybe I'll be wrong, but I don't think we'll ever see the drop-off that we saw with the governor's race and then Casey Cagle. I think every time at least 100,000 fewer people voted for Cagle than they did the governor's race. Um, But I still think, you know, the Republicans, there are a lot of people who are upset with Duncan, and even though he's a Republican, they are are Schaefer um, loyalists who don't feel comfortable. They're not going to vote for the Democrat, but they won't vote for Duncan, and so they'll skip it. And I think you'll see the same people not energized by Brad Raffensperger in the Secretary of State's race um, just skip something. I don't know why people think that, you know, skipping a race is a is sending a message, but they do. And when turnout is in favor of the other side, then it is sending a message, and it could very well tip the scales for the Democrats, I think. is I think that's going to be what we see the most of is, when the Republicans don't vote, it's going to help the Democrats this time. Yeah, I, I do think the energy is going to be on the Democratic side. I do think in some places there may be some voter fall off um, because to me, some of your less motivated or less sophisticated voters are going to be the ones that vote just on the top races. I think you see that a lot in presidential, but in this case, you may see governor. In other states, you may see U.S. Senate because, of course, this could happen in other states, other ways. Well, um, Jessica, since we just have a few minutes, um, are there any other races that we didn't touch on that you think, oh, man, they should have? You know, I would just encourage people to read about their super, school superintendent and their public service commission candidate races because in, all, in both the public service commission races, there are three candidates, um, a libertarian, a Republican, and a Democrat, and people just get lazy and they don't do their research when they get down there. But I mean, as we've seen with all of the daily almost headlines on Plant Vogel, like this stuff really matters. And I'm just kind of disappointed with the overall lack of state coverage because they talk about um, Plant Vogel and the cost to consumers, you know, pretty much every single day, but nobody's really talking about where these people who are running for the position that regulates that, what they want to do with the project and how they see us going forward with it and managing the cost of what seems to be ever climbing. So that's something that I'd really love for people just to take a little time to learn more about. Yes. Well, um, Jessica, before we sign off for the night, all three of us, um, you told us about some places to see you and where to read you. Are there any other you know, social media things or anywhere else people can get a hold of you and read some of your thoughts? So I am on Facebook, of course. Um, I have a, a public page on Facebook, and then I'm on Twitter. 
Um, it's just my first and last name, at Jessica Salagi. Um, but I love hearing from people, and I love hearing. I don't like echo chambers, so I love dissenting opinions, even if they want to rip me a new one. So. Yes. Well, Jessica, thank you for going, uh, coming on the show as the guest host. Uh, first time we've done this in a little while. And for Tim and I both, um, been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, Thanks. guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?